You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, everyone. Abraham here. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. Today, I will be flying solo. I'm bringing you an interview I had the privilege of conducting with Dr. Kent McIntosh on the subject of disproportionality in school discipline. I hope you enjoy this fascinating topic on a really important and I think timely subject. So here's this discussion with Dr. Kent McIntosh. Okay, so let's begin with, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself. Tell our audience who you are and, uh, and what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Kent McIntosh. I am the Philip H. Knight Chair of Special Education at the University of Oregon. I am also the director of a research unit here in the College of Education called Educational and Community Supports. And then I'm also the co-director of a National Technical Assistance Center on Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports, or PBIS. Cool. Can you say a little bit more about that, that, that job that you just listed at the end and what that would entail? <laughs> yeah, you bet. So the Technical Assistance Centers are a program of the Office of Special Education Programs in the Department of Education. And our main job is to provide support to states and then districts and then in, uh, directly to schools in creating a positive school culture, improving school climate, increasing school safety, decreasing uh, unwanted behavior like bullying, harassment, uh, and disruptive behavior. So we work with uh, most state departments of education and uh, right now work indirectly with over 25,000 schools across the country. So about one in four schools across the country gets either direct or indirect support from us on improving school climate. That's amazing. I was just about to ask what proportion that would be. So you answered my question before I even got there. Um, well, very cool. So let's actually go ahead and jump right into our topic then in specifically discussing disproportionality. If you could define that as a what, what is disproportionality in school discipline and how did you come to be interested in this and to study this? Yeah. Disproportionality in school discipline is simply increased risk for being excluded from instruction, whether that be an office discipline referral, so being sent out of the room, uh, suspension, being sent out of school, or expulsion, being removed from the environment. And the disproportionality comes from this increased risk just from being part of a group. And uh, these groups could be race or ethnicity, could be ability, could be gender. Uh, Although most of the time when people are talking about disproportionality, they're talking about racial disproportionality. I got it. Okay. And and how did you get involved in in studying this? And how did you get started? And where'd your interest begin? (laughs) Probably for most people who are educators, it started from me as a student myself. Uh, I grew up in a uh, really diverse city, Los Angeles, California, but uh, went to school in a very segregated school system. And, you know, believe it or not, schools are as segregated now as they've ever been in the country. And uh, even then, you know, I went to uh, school without a lot of students who were Black or African American. And um, 
so I was always kind of intrigued, I think, with this idea of um, there's this whole other group of people who I don't have any contact with or experience with other than sort of seeing on television or, uh, or, or watching on the news. And for me, that became pretty interesting. And then as I you know, went through school, went through high school and had friends who are black, started learning about that experience. And, and to be honest, you know, I got a lot of interest in this area from reading literature. Uh, and there was a there was a book that I read in uh, high school called Invisible Man by Ralph Waldo Ellison, and it really spoke to me about gosh, you know, how can we have a group of people who are, are so marginalized in society, uh, and that that in a combination with the experiences I had really drew me toward this uh, area of. Uh, race and race relations and, you know, specifically race in education as well. I mean, uh, if we're not serving all groups of students well in education, uh, we don't have a very good educational system. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say, I mean, I would completely agree with that. And I just thinking about what it expanded to say, if, if there's any amount of this discrimination going on in the country, then there's something wrong with the systems that facilitate that. I want to go back to something you said where you mentioned that schools are as segregated now as they have ever been. Could you speak to some of the statistics that are that would demonstrate that the kind of segregation that is being seen right now? Yeah, I'm not an absolute expert in it, but one of the things that we know from the history of the recent history in education is that there was a movement in the 60s and 70s uh, for uh, civil rights and desegregation of schools. And one of the things that's quite interesting about it and disturbing at the same time is that students can go to their neighborhood schools. It's not that the neighborhood schools themselves are segregated. It's that the communities are segregated. And those come directly from housing policy, which was really, really clearly stated, you know, from the 1950s and on, um, you know, really explicitly discriminatory uh, against Black people, where they could live, uh, where they could buy, where, uh, what kind of loans people could get. And through this process called redlining, Black families were essentially steered towards Black communities and White families were steered towards white communities. And so now when you look at neighborhood schools, that's, that's what it looks like. And um, one of the things that's really concerning about this is that a pretty good intervention that we've seen for improving uh, discrimination is this idea of what's called intergroup contact, meaning that the more people you know from a different group, uh, as opposed to just one person, or as I was saying before, just about being seeing them on the news or uh, reading in the newspaper or, or watching stereotypes on TV, the more people you have regular contact with, the less likely you are to have these stereotypes that hold really firm, even in the face of evidence that says, you know, this is not true for this individual. Man, that's 
that's important. Like that seems like a really powerful thing. And it seems like then this isn't necessarily to do with the schools and how they're separating the students or how they're shifting districts around so that they only serve a certain population of students, but has to do with the general policy, uh, I guess, and with respect to the government and how people are sort of directed in communities. Is that correct? Yeah. If you're talking about segregation in schools, it is a direct reflection of the institutional bias that's there in society that just shows up for who's in what school enrollment zone. So what does this this kind of segregation, what does this disproportional distribution look like when we start to, to examine rates of things like school discipline? You know, we see across for the last for the last 40 years or so, we've had some good information on good national data looking at rates of disproportionality in school discipline. And most estimates show that black students are two to four times more likely than their peers from other races to be sent to the office, uh, to be suspended from school, to be arrested on campus. And one of the things that's, that I found really surprising is that the biggest rates, the highest rates of disproportionality are not in high school, it's in preschool. You know, these are, these are little itty bitty kids who are being kicked out of preschool, you know, and sometimes because grown up teachers are saying they're, you know, they feel threatened by, you know, by a four year old. Wow. And this includes those who are being arrested as well? Uh, we don't see too much arrests in preschool, which is generally a good thing. Uh, and actually, the rate of arrest on campus is is pretty low compared to all of the uh, other exclusions that I'm describing. Um, so for the most part, what we're really talking about is removing, being removed from your peers uh, from instruction or from the classroom for small periods of time or for one or two days, as opposed to uh, really enormous things. Uh, and they, but we do see it. And they say this is because they're afraid of the kids? You'll see different explanations of it. And the explanations that we see that seem to be more clear is this idea of here are kids who I can't control. Here are kids who are not doing the thing that I'm expecting them to do. Of course. <laughs> it's always something that's just, it's, I feel like it's kind of hard to hear stuff like that and not have the reaction of immediately wanting to sort of point the finger at someone and say, you're doing something wrong. I, you know, I always want to come at this um, with compassion from all sides and say, okay, why is this happening? And how can I understand where everybody is coming from and still have respect for the people who are largely being, I guess, directly affected by this in an adverse way? Yeah, and that's, you know, the tension that you have to hold is to be there with the discomfort of seeing these outcomes and working with individuals who are stuck in a system and who are really, you know, sometimes unaware, sometimes aware and still trying to make changes and having a hard time with it. It doesn't really help uh, for us to blame teachers for a societal problem. But it does help for us to look and say, wow, what can we as educators do to make a change? How can we interrupt these cycles? And school is one of the best places to do it. 
I think that's a great point. And although it probably sounds pretty obvious at this point why this matters, could you speak to sort of the bigger picture and why this is an important thing to intervene on and why it's worth really spending the time to find a way to address this issue? Yeah. You know, if you just describe in really clear terms this idea of excluding students from instruction, excluding students from the learning environment, we've got plenty of really good evidence that says it's harmful to students. Robert Balfans and uh, colleagues at Johns Hopkins had a study a little while back looking and found that one suspension in ninth grade doubled a student's chance of dropout. And then every suspension from there on increased it more and more. So what we end up seeing is we're, we're providing a not so subtle message to students when we remove them from the classroom, when we remove them from school, we start saying, you know what, uh, you know, maybe school, uh, maybe school isn't the right place for you. And that is a really difficult message because education is the pathway to improved employment, higher pay, less chance of incarceration, less chance of uh, having to need social assistance. All of these really big things, if we're removing the education pathway for students, we're we're introducing a lot of risk factors and decreasing um, a lot of protective factors. And the fact that we're doing that by race is even more alarming. I mean, if you have a student who's two to four times more likely to be, in this case, I guess, suspended, and it seems to be, and it's because of their race, because of the color of their skin, and then going back to the, the fact that this problem is related to, at least to an extent, how there is already an average lower level of income and lower socioeconomic status among minorities, generally speaking, that just seems to perpetuate that cycle that they don't graduate, they don't have access to that education or to those jobs and just end up in, a, in that, that system that just sort of churns out the same sort of results over and over again. Mm. Yeah, you're doing a really good job of pointing out some of the complexity uh, for what contributes to it. And I think, you know, one of the questions is, I, I think, you know, a lot of people are thinking as you're, as they're listening to this is, okay, well, there's, there's outright racism, you know, which, you know, clearly seems to be pointed at as we're describing right now. And then you're also talking about environmental uh, factors as well. And so it's, it's complicated. There, there are a lot of factors involved and there are a lot of, of opinions out there about what's causing, what's driving these racial differences. And some of them have a pretty good fact base and others have less. But one of the things that I, th I wanted to describe, because this is a really common uh, area that, that people want to talk about, is this this idea of socioeconomic status or, or poverty as uh, one of the factors related to disproportionate discipline. And we've got pretty good evidence out there that says, yeah, coming from low uh, SES, low socioeconomic status backgrounds is an increased risk factor for being sent out of the classroom, being sent out of school. But 
there's also a good deal of research out there, really high quality research, saying that even when you control for the effects of poverty, you still see significant racial differences. So that um, connection right there between poverty and race and disproportionality, it's there. It's, it's there and it's very obvious for people, but there is a racial component to it. And, you know, it, it feels, I think, in our kind of modern uh, American society, it feels more comfortable for us to say, oh, you know, it's poverty, because then that says, okay, then, then we can sort of start saying, oh, okay, well, then it's maybe these characteristics of race that make a difference. And, and so maybe, maybe that's part of it. You know, maybe some people can kind of, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps a little bit more. But we've, we've got lots of good evidence that show that that's not the case and that we see that race is a driver of this and a really salient one. Yeah, it's not really within the scope of, of this discussion to dive into the broader topic of understanding when someone is sort of born into that system and lives inside of that system, how few opportunities seem to present themselves, how little there is to learn about how to potentially improve your situation or change it or whether you should change it because there's a lot of reasons one might feel like, well, this is just the world I'm a part of and mm -hmm. and various other things. So even that seems to be its own totally complex topic, which is really important one to discuss. Um, you did a, a wonderful job really leading into this discussion. And so in addition to the race and the poverty, and as we've sort of discussed, the systems that are in place to direct people who belong to these different minority or ethnic groups to communities that then tend to end up in the, in the same schools and whatnot, what are some of the other factors that contribute to disproportionality? Yeah, great. So we've got some good research from uh, my colleagues, Catherine Bradshaw, Terry Scott, who have looked at this question of, you know, maybe there are some differences in what we call base rates of behavior, which is a super nerdy way of simply saying, do some groups just have more problem behavior? And therefore, that's why they're sent to the office more, kicked out of school more. And we don't have uh, really much evidence at all. There's, there are some studies showing that, but there are a couple studies showing something a little bit different. So I was describing before Catherine Bradshaw is also at Johns Hopkins and UVA. They had a study having all teachers in a school rate uh, their students' levels of problem behavior. So they fill out a rating scale that would be commonly used to, you know, maybe refer a student for additional support and so on. Every student got this rating from their teacher on their levels of problem behavior. Then they took at the end of the year, they took those ratings and found out that, yeah, okay, those ratings of problem behavior actually uh, predicted how often they sent those students to the office. But the other thing that was interesting is when they controlled for those ratings, the teachers still sent, sent significantly more black students to the office for problem behavior, even when controlling for those same teachers' ratings. Uh, and I, I'll give you another example. Terry Scott did this work looking at this mass observations of classroom behavior. And one of the things that he had noticed in the work was that black students were getting higher rates of reprimands uh, than any other racial group. And this is across elementary and uh, high school classrooms as well. 
And so one of the one of the sort of hypotheses is, oh, okay, well maybe we see, you know, more disruption from the black students, and actually they found less disruption from the black students. And so when I start thinking about this a little bit, there was a really nice another study. I know I'm kind of studying up on everything here, by a colleague Walter Gilliam at Yale University, who took preschool teachers, and they were they were actually at a conference. And ask them to sit down and watch videos of kids interacting with each other in a preschool classroom. And what they had is they had this um, eye gaze tracker. So they had this, um, they were able to see what the teachers were looking at. And he asked them, said, okay, I want you to look at this video and I want you to watch for problem behavior. And this is what's called a deception study, meaning that um, these were actually all child actors. There was no problem behavior there. But when they were primed to look for problem behavior, they were inordinately looking at the black boy and then also the white boy. So there's this race and gender component. And, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, I am uh, the parent of two preschool graduates. And I know that if you look long enough at a preschooler for unwanted behavior, uh, you're going to see it. <laughs> yeah. So we call that a surveillance effect, which means if we're kind of on the lookout, if we're kind of primed already to look at a student and say, hmm, I should be looking for problem behavior. And we look at another student and we say, hmm. I'm going to assume that they're doing everything that's in line. That's really difficult. What we could do is if you, if you want me to really geek out here for a moment uh, from a behavior analytic standpoint, sure. you know, we, we call that inappropriate stimulus control, meaning that my decisions are based on the student's race as opposed to the behavior that I'm trying to classify as okay or not okay. That reminds me of the effect of when when you get a new car, for example, you start to notice every time that that car is on the road around you. Mm -hmm. And and it's sort of your attention now has been primed to pay attention to that type of car. And so people in the these teachers in the classrooms are, for whatever reason, that I think we'll go into later, primed to be looking for this problem behavior uh, just by the virtue of the fact of the, the color of their skin. And then as you pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, and I, I was going to ask as well, is the gender issue of, we're going to look at, in order, uh, the black boy, the white boy, the black girl, and the white girl, probably, where of who we're expecting to be the offender is sort of in that list of, in that order that I just listed. Very, very close. Interestingly enough, the black girl was uh, looked at less than the white girl. Oh. There's some race and gender research that's fairly mixed. And sometimes there, there have been some studies showing that black girls get more referrals than white boys, which is really out of our gender stereotypes that we have and most of the patterns that we see. And then we have some that say we have few. But I would also argue that the lack of looking for a student for challenge also means we're not actually looking to find uh, skills that we want to build for them. Uh, we're not looking out for areas that we could support. Uh, we're also not looking for incidences of appropriate behavior that we want to pay attention to and acknowledge and provide some behavior-specific praise as well. 
Um, I want to go back really quick to a point that you you also mentioned with respect to those base rates of the problem behavior. And I believe that there would be some people who somebody believes anything out there, but so I'm, I'm pretty confident that this is the case, but someone might say, well, maybe it's the case that the people of this race do just tend to have more problem behavior. And so the thing that you mentioned with the study by um, Bradshaw, I, I believe was, and I just want to say this back to you to make sure that I understood this correctly, was that if they t- looked at just the students who had the same rating from their teachers, so the same types of problem behavior or the same rates of problem behavior, when that was the same across regardless of race, that the the black children will st- were still sent to the office more often, even though the white children weren't demonstrating the same types of problems. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. You're taking, you're, you're essentially controlling for taking that out of the equation and saying an equally <laughs> disruptive, I, I don't really like those terms quite as much, but an equally disruptive black boy and white boy, the black boy is going to get sent to the office more. Are there other of these sort of alternative ideas for what might be a factor that would contribute to this disproportional school discipline? And I'm thinking specifically of people who are looking at this skeptically or, or doubtfully and thinking that um, it's, well, it's not really a race thing. It's a X, you know, whatever it is thing that it's a math. It's just the way you're calculating your numbers. It's just that these people are that, the, that these races, they don't value education the same way. I, I'm just trying to make up like what might be another hypothesis that uh, that you may have heard that uh, someone might try and offer. And if there is a rebuttal to that. <laughs> yeah, I like that you're going there. One of the things that I'm, I'm, you know, really enjoying about this conversation is that we're going like straight into areas of discomfort. And that is so important for the work that we do. And it's super easy, you know, look at me, white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, like, I'm basically part of every highly represented group you can find out there. And so it's very easy for me to ignore these things. If I feel a little bit of discomfort, I move away from them. But one of the things that I think of is that we really encourage people to look at their data and see. And it could be we've got schools that you know, it's not necessarily black-white differences or black-all-other differences where they see the most challenge. Uh, and especially as you move into high school, we see, for example, our indigenous or Native American uh, students get higher rates of office referrals. And I should say that all of the metrics that we use, all of the ways to count disproportionality, all control for the population of students in the school. So it's not a, um, it's not really a denominator question and you can calculate it a few different ways and you can see that. So sometimes people look and they'll say, Oh yeah, you know, but all of our disproportionality is driven by these three kids. And we can actually look all basically all those stats that I described before about black students being two to four times more likely than their peers to be sent to the office that actually does not account for whether they were sent to the office once or 50 times. Wow. So that way uh, you're able to, and you can look at it both ways. You can look at rates per student or you can look at risk overall. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there are sometimes people look at it and Jason Okonofua uh, looks at this idea of what is it like to be a student of color growing up in this environment where they're just experiencing this increased surveillance effect, they're watching 
themselves or their peers being singled out when there are other students around in the classroom who aren't. It actually, you know, if you were to start seeing that, you might see a lot of disruption simply because of a reaction to this, you know, unfair system that's out there as well. So you might even see different rates because of that. So one of the things that starts pulling us toward this, and I was describing, you know, asking schools to look at their data, our data are showing um, you can divide any of the incidents that students get sent to the office to or sent home for into these categories of objective and subjective referral types. And so what I mean by that as um, an objective referral type is you were absent, right? You did not show up to class. Okay, we can be pretty clear on that. You were smoking, like I can see a cigarette, it is hanging out of your mouth, I think I'm supposed to write you up because that is a possession of tobacco. However, um, the vast majority of disproportionality comes from these subjectively defined behaviors. Uh, we call them the three Ds, defiance, disrespect, and disruption. Those three account for almost all of the disproportionality that we see. Wow. So if we were to see, if, we, if, we, if you had that argument about, about like, oh, okay, well, these students are just, it's a culture thing, they're just lack of morals, whatever you want to describe, single parent homes and, and um, uh, poverty and all of these risks, we would expect to see increased problem behavior across the board. But instead, we see it specifically for these subjectively defined behaviors that are really kind of the judgment calls. Right. And anytime a teacher has to make, anytime anybody has to make these decisions and there's this ambiguity in the decisions that we make, you know, it's not a black or white thing. It's kind of in between. That is where we see the most effect of our biases on uh, our decisions. So we, we are common, um, likely to say ambiguity is disproportionality's best friend. Wow. The more ambiguous the discipline decision we have to make, the more our implicit biases are to influence the decisions, you know, without us even knowing it. Yeah. That, that seems, that's a really important point. It, it seems based on, on what you're saying that the, fact that there is this disproportional amount of discipline happening in these referrals is not something that is unknown to the schools and to a lot of people who are involved in making decisions about the schools. Right. And so I would imagine then that there have been some initiatives or policies to try and address this to some extent. What are some things I always like to try and, and look at the past and see what we can learn from that. And so what are some things that people have tried that have failed to address this issue appropriately? Yeah, there are a few things that people have tried. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you would be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't think that at the very least that this phenomenon exists, whether or not they are convinced that we have to do anything different is sort of that. How are they? Uh, what are they ascribing the differences to? Right. Got it. But there's, there's sort of three uh, main policies that people try fairly regularly to do. One is called the get tough approach. And in schools is most often called zero tolerance or in communities is sometimes called the broken windows approach. 
which is um, we are going to look for and find every incident of non-desired behavior, and we are going to let you know that it is unacceptable. We're going to exclude you from instruction. We're going to send you out of school. And the thing that's interesting is there are no get tough or zero tolerance policies that explicitly mention race. But as those zero tolerance policies have been adopted and are used and endorsed in schools, the disproportionality increases, which is a a pretty interesting thing because you're trying to, uh, as I was describing before, try to reduce the ambiguity but at the same time, you see increases disproportionality. That makes sense if you take, as you were mentioning, the the rates of suspension increasing dropout rates. Well, if you skip suspension and just go straight to like expulsion mm-hmm. or something more severe, then then yeah, like the disproportionality thing is just going to be magnified tremendously, I would think. You bet. Yeah. So another thing people do is they say, oh, okay, well, it's not just discipline. I think this has got something to do with culture which obviously it does. You know, we have very different definitions for what's acceptable, what's not, uh, what's valued, what's not. And, you know, more often than not, if your teachers, you know, look like me, but your students don't look a whole lot like me, um, there's a fairly good sense that there's this mismatch where I might, because of behavior is unfamiliar to me, I might look at it and label it wrong as opposed to just different. That makes intuitive sense for sure. Yeah. And and so what people do is they say, okay, well, we, uh, and this is not um, specific to education. We see this uh, in the business world too, where people say, okay, we need to institute uh, cultural sensitivity training, or we need to institute diversity training, or sometimes training in culturally responsive practices. And this is for just targeting this, the teachers that to like give them this training, right? Exactly. Yeah, this is not <laughs> this is not training the students in how to adapt to a racist system, <laughs> which uh, I, I'm not a big fan of. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. This, this is basically changing um, to say, like, what are we doing? Like, how are we as adults in the building contributing to it? And that sounds really good, but we have a literature review from Jessica Badiani showing that these trainings. Uh, have not been shown to make a difference whatsoever in disproportionality. And I think one of the things for those who have been through this or who have delivered them, you know, you can have a great experience. You can learn about different cultures. uh, You know, you can cry a lot. um, You can hug at the end. uh, But if you don't know how to change your instruction the next day, there is nothing that you're going to be able to do to make a difference. Uh, Got it. So that's that's one of the challenges. If you do this standalone one-time diversity training that's not skill-based, that doesn't have follow-on coaching, it's really unlikely to work. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I mentioned the third one. Um, this one is uh, this is really bizarre to us for why it doesn't work. There's this term called ethnic match. And I could give you a super geeky definition, or I could just say, hey, if you have a lot of black students in your school, you ought to hire a lot of black teachers. And there have been tons of studies over the last five to 10 years showing that when you increase the number of 
uh, black staff and black teachers in a primarily black school, you get increased graduation rates, decreased dropout, increased college attendance, increased placement into talented and gifted programs, which is another area of disproportionality that we see. But the thing that's interesting is we do not see that much difference in terms of disproportionality in school discipline. There are a couple studies saying it makes a little bit of a difference. There are uh, a bunch of other studies showing that it doesn't. And so I think one of the things that's really important for us to do is I am absolutely a massive fan of ethnic match um, and diversifying our workforce for so many reasons, but it just doesn't seem to make a big difference uh, in in school discipline. And I'd, I'd say one of the reasons for that has to do with this idea that I've been kind of talking around a little bit as we've been discussing this issue, and it's called implicit bias. And one of the things that's important to know about implicit bias is it's not the kind of bias that we're sort of used to thinking of when we think of bias. So a lot of times when we think of bias, we think about like conscious, like I'm going to treat that person differently because they're part of this group and that's just how it is. And implicit bias is different uh, because it's unconscious or automatic. Uh, We act that way even though we uh, are unaware. So, you know, when you talk about those preschool teachers, those preschool teachers were not saying in their heads, I'm going to look at the black boys and I'm going to look a little bit more at the white boys too because I know that that's who I ought to be looking for. And yet sort of their eyes went in that direction. It's those ambiguous decisions. And the thing that we know about implicit bias is that it's apparent in society and uh, just about everybody has implicit racial biases, even those who are affected by it, which helps to describe a little bit of the ethnic match part is that we have in some as a society have this, whether it's a finger on the scale or what, that tips us toward this implicit bias that we've got uh, regarding race. So if we look at these things that the zero tolerance, which is we're in a, we're in a stop, any problem behavior is, is too far or trying to change the teacher's behavior by giving them better, I guess, tools to be sensitive to other cultures or even trying to match the races of the, the students to the, the people who, uh, who will be in charge of those disciplines. None of those are, have been very effective and some of them less than effective and doing the, and actually do more harm um, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to address this issue. So what, what could be done or what has been done to start to approach making some inroads and in how we might start to solve this problem? Good question. You know, if you were to ask me five years ago, I would say, I don't know. But in the last five years, um, we've had a lot of really good work uh, that's identifying us some, you know, not necessarily, you know, what we would call an evidence-based practice, but uh, research showing that there's some things that we can do to make a difference. I was describing before that I get to be the co-director of the Center on Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. So PBIS is a framework for implementing strategies in schools to improve school climate. 
And one of the questions that people have had over time is, okay, well, this, this approach that you use, identifying a team, identifying uh, values or expectations in a school, teaching those directly, acknowledging those, do those make things better or do they make things worse? And there's been a lot of debate about it, but it's been mostly opinion-based. Uh, we went back and we looked at um, comparing schools implementing PBIS to the national population of schools. And what we found was that schools implementing PBIS with adequate fidelity, meaning they're doing enough of it that we would say, yep, it's, they're, they're doing it and, it's, and we can call it that, they see decreased disproportionality for black students. Black students are sent to the office less, they are suspended less. But it doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually eliminate it entirely. It decreases it. So it goes from like, oh my God, this is terrible to like, <laughs> this is terrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Um, and, and so what, what we see from that is like, okay, well, this is a good framework for doing it. It's not doing harm. It's making a little bit of a difference. But what are the things that we need to do to change that? So there's been some research in looking you know, at parts of PBIS. Uh, and which ones are more or less related to it. And so what we see is uh, schools that you that look at their data regularly and use it for decision making, schools that focus on teaching classroom systems, so having, cla- having clear classroom routines, classroom acknowledgement systems, and then also schools that have a good use of formal acknowledgement systems in school, so systems for recognizing students when they do things the right way, that those three are uh, the drivers of decreased disproportionality. That's awesome. Have any of those strategies or anything else that you've seen been able to reduce it all the way to just being totally even at all? Or is that still something that's being worked toward? You know, we get we get closer. The thing that the thing that's interesting with some of these is it is a great problem to have to say like we can reduce this to even. We have a project uh, right now that's federally funded by the institution uh, Institute for Education Sciences (IES) uh, that's looking at this very thing, and we've been putting we've put together this intervention approach to do just that. And the work that we've been doing is essentially we, it's got a few parts. One part is we work with them to look at their school data, not just to say, is this bad or is this not bad? But we can use uh, their data to identify really specific situations where we as educators might act more based on our implicit racial biases than on our values as educators. We can pinpoint those specific situations, identify them, and then put um, some practices in place to improve that. And the, the parts that we do is we work on how do we make these school systems, you know, really in concrete ways, how do we make our school systems more culturally responsive? The way that we teach routines, the way that we identify what things in the school or what things in the classroom are okay versus not okay, We actually work with students on identifying what are the things that look okay and not okay at school and how is that different from home or how is that different from you and your friends? And sometimes what we find is that there's a big jump that students have to make between school and home and in their community or in their neighborhood with their friends. 
So that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is we can teach people to become aware of their implicit biases and actually teach them um, what we call a neutralizing routine, which is a replacement behavior instead of simply sending a student out of the classroom uh, or kicking a student out of school to stop yourself right as you're about to make one of those decisions and uh, proceed with an instructional response instead of an exclusionary response. Uh, and then the last part that we use is lots of coaching with performance feedback. Uh, so uh, one of my students, Cody Guion, uh, completed his dissertation last year, actually observing teachers in the classroom and showing them their disproportionate use of praise and reprimands in the classroom. And just having an open conversation about, okay, here it is. I'm pretty sure this doesn't line up with your values. What are the things that you want to do differently? And then continuing to support them. Uh, you know, we're not very interested in this idea of can we identify who are the bad apples and can we fire them? Because we would be either alternatively firing or keeping all of us, depending on the situation. So I think you've sort of spoken to this a little bit. But I'm wondering if you have just any more to say about why this system would work so much better than those other three that seemed to have like a promising sort of, I guess, philosophy to them, and yet they were not working. And yet what's being done now seems to be showing that there is kind of some hope. Why, why is this working? What's different about it that's important? I would say a huge thing that we're doing is uh, we are doing some awareness raising, but we're really focused on implementing strategies. We want to give teachers specific things that they can do differently to interrupt their implicit biases and to, and to interrupt their split second decision to send a student to the office. So most of us know, gosh, you know, if we define classroom routines, if we define our situations, uh, sorry, if we define our settings in the classroom, uh, in a way that doesn't line up with students' previous learning histories, we're going to have a hard time with it. If we're going to assume that students know how to be a student in my classroom without teaching them, then we commit what one of my favorite teachers, Anita Archer, says is a suicide. It's <laughs> clever. And the challenge is that um, we are more likely to assume when I, when I have make my assumptions, it's really based on my, you know, white middle-class upraising, not necessarily my students' experiences. And so that's when I start looking and saying, oh, that behavior is different. Uh, and my first thought is that's wrong. But if I catch myself and say, huh, you know, that is, maybe that's just appropriate variations on a theme. Or maybe that's like, oh, you know what? Have I taught that? Have I taught volume levels uh, during transitions? Maybe, maybe not. Have I caught this student being good? Or are most of my interactions with the student negative or punitive? Those are, those are, are much more specific things that are actionable than the others. Uh, and we've got some, we've got a few good case studies of really reducing disproportionality, especially just reducing exclusions for African American students out of the classroom, out of school. And a lot of this is looking at their data, putting these things in place, 
having some conversations about it. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's fascinating. I don't want to say that this is easy because it is absolutely not easy. But sometimes you can, uh, just with this awareness and being able to look at your information, you can do it. Um, so I want to share this story uh, of a school that we've worked with. Um, and this is an inner city school. They were having um, really, really strong disproportionality uh, for, um, as a K-8 school, it was black, um, white disproportionality differences. And what they did is they said, okay, well, we could, you know, we could blame the families, but that does not seem to be effective. But what they did is they looked at their data and they drilled down. So they used their data discipline system to find these specific interactions. And what they found is that the vast majority of their discipline disproportionality was in these specific situations of physical aggression on the playground. There were, so, you know, and I was talking about this before, the students were about two and a half times, about uh, uh, almost three times more likely black students to be sent to the office than white students. But for physical aggression on the playground, they were four and a half times more likely to be sent to the office. Wow. So what they did is they said, well, let's go look and see what's going on. They talked to the recess monitors and found the majority of the challenges were happening on the basketball court. And they started looking and thinking about it and said, you know what? We think a lot of our challenges are actually based on differing definitions of what's okay and what's not okay. And essentially, a lot of students in the school were saying, hey, it's basketball. We like to play basketball with street ball rules. You know, so aggressive defending, trash talking, being in your face. Um, and then uh, some of the other students, let's say the white students and the recess monitors were expecting National Basketball Association rules. You know, right. no defense, uh, you know, provide space, let somebody drive to the basket, you know, all of that. And so what they said is, you know what, uh, instead of just sort of like blaming, instead of being like, oh my gosh, the problem is that these, it's these single parent households, you know, that right. was not what they did. They said, wait a minute, we just have two, you know, basically equally valid definitions of what's okay and what's not okay. And that's what we're running into. So what they did is they decided, and you could decide it either way if you wanted to, but the PET, the team and the PE teacher said, you know, this is actually a really good opportunity for us to teach the rules of a game as part of our PE. So they decided, okay, we're going to teach that this court during school hours goes by NBA basketball rules. Okay. And they taught, they practiced it. They did some small group work with some students who needed a little bit more support doing it. And what they said was instead of um, this is the right way to do it and what you're doing is the wrong way to do it, they say, hey, there's two different ways of playing basketball. There's street ball and there's NBA. And the court, that you, the neighborhood court that you use three blocks away, that can be a street ball court. And if you come here on the weekends, this can be a street ball court. But during school hours, because there are so many students, because we're getting to know each other, we're going to use NBA rules. And they dropped discipline referrals and disproportionality dramatically. I mean, it was so much that um, for that term, they only had one referral 
for physical aggression on the playground. So rather than make assumptions about what the causes were, they looked at data to make an informed decision about how to proceed. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a change. And I, and I would say even too, you know, you had mentioned before, you know, people who are naysayers who are, you know, who may very well say, you know, based on my learning history, based on my experience, I see, you know, that the reason that black students are, are, uh, uh, referred for disruption is because they're more disruptive or, or something like that, or because they're these risk factors. And, you know, my response to that, <laughs> I have found that I don't usually win arguments with data very often. <laughs> uh, but my response to that is like, okay, you have, you have based on your learning history, you have identified a student group who needs more support and is not going to be successful in the system that we have. So what's the additional support that we're going to provide for these students to ensure that they are successful too? And that is in my mind, an easier lift than simply arguing about the premise and meanwhile, not actually doing anything differently with students. That makes sense. Do you have any data to suggest that this this disproportionality is something that happens internationally? Is this a, pro- a problem across all schools or or is this seem to be just something that we have information on with respect to schools in the United States? Oh, great question. Yeah, you know, there is definitely something uniquely American about this challenge, but it's not by any means restricted to the US. Some of the best research that we're seeing outside of the US is actually coming from Europe. And Europe is dealing with, so the sort of old Europe is dealing with an influx of refugees and immigrants, uh, uh, many who are coming from um, North Africa or from the Middle East. And there's plenty of research out there that they are having as much of a, those white educators uh, in Europe are having as much or harder of a time uh, than we are. And so we still, we see the same implicit biases. We see the same lowered expectations for students. Um, there was a great uh, study that uh, just came out looking at um, Italian teachers and grading. And one of the things they found was Um, that Italian teachers, it seemed, based on the data that they had, were grading recent immigrant students uh, lower than they should based on, uh, you know, based on objective measures. And what was interesting, instead of just stopping there and saying, boom, you know, uh, all these Italian teachers are racist, uh, what they did instead was inform the teachers of this and The cool thing about it is that those differences, those sort of, you know, scoring immigrant students lower on what should be similarly scored um, uh, uh, products disappeared. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's this awareness. It's not, you know, I'm not somebody who is here, you know, everything that we do at the PBIS Center is stuff we give away for free. All of the products that we have are all for free. I am not saying that we have any kind of magical solution, but I, I am saying that we cannot anymore sit back, like I was saying five years ago, and say, you know, I don't know what we can do about this. 
Yeah. We've got specific things that we can do to make a difference in with this challenge in students' lives. Perfect. Well, I know I know we need to wrap this up. I'm curious though, if you think that we you mentioned that we you haven't been able to sort of really close the gap all the way. And I'm wondering if you think that this is something that can't be addressed if there is sort of an institutionalized and cultural level of segregation, if that needs to be addressed to really facilitate closing the gap on the disproportionality that's occurring. <laughs> I'm a big fan of being aware of larger system influences without being paralyzed by them. Okay. Oh, our main thing that we look at when we look at these disparities, and one of the reasons why, you know, as I said before, we look at we look at risk, but we also look at rates of challenges. Uh, our main goal is to reduce the rate of referrals to below the national average for every group, uh, which does mean that there could still be some disparities, but they end up being very small disparities. Uh, you know, for example, that school that I described uh, before with the basketball example, that teacher only suspended one student um, that year, which is a pretty neat thing. Yeah. Uh, that one student was African-American. So if you were to look, if you were just to kind of look at disproportionality, you'd go, oh my gosh. But think about the reduced risk. And if we can get there, if we can get these... Um, uh, rates to what's below, you know, what sometimes people call this disparate impact. You know, if we can get if we can get black students below uh, being one and a quarter times more likely to be suspended, that's good. I, I'm not going to say not to keep going with it, uh, but I'll be really happy if that's the conversation we're having uh, instead of reducing it from four and a half to three. Yeah, I mean, let's celebrate those victories where they occur. Indeed. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any other closing thoughts you'd like to um, provide before before we wrap it up here? You know, I've really enjoyed it. I hope that people are able to listen and uh, and think about steps that they can take and do differently. We've got a ton of resources if you go to pbis.org and you go to our equity page. Uh, you can find just about all of the strategies that we were describing that I was talking about and that we're testing right now for its effectiveness. Excellent. And if people would like to reach out to you, in the past, we've sort of been a filter. So we've asked that if people want to reach out to our guests, that they just contact us and we can pass along those. But if you'd like, you can provide uh, contact information to allow people to contact you directly. If not, So it's up to you if you'd like to provide that. Yeah. Anybody who's interested, you can get a hold of me at Kent M, K-E-N-T-M, at Oregon. That's the letter U and then the name of the state, O-R-E-G-O-N dot E-D-U. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your, t- your time today, Dr. McIntosh. I appreciate your, uh, your help and, uh, and I will let you go. Thank you for your contribution. I uh, really appreciate it, Abraham. Take care. Thank you. Okay, well, that wraps up our discussion with Dr. Kent McIntosh. I hope that you enjoyed this and maybe learned something new. Again, I thought this was a really important topic and really enjoyed getting to listen to Dr. McIntosh as he was able to weigh in with his expertise. Um, As always, you can reach us at 
info at www.wwdpodcast and on all the social media platforms. You can find this and other episodes on our website and wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play Why We Do What We Do. Furthermore, we look forward to hearing from anybody. If you have any questions, comments, or thoughts on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any corrections, please feel free to leave us a nice message on any of those platforms we mentioned or in the comments on the website for this episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can always do that by going to patreon.com. And if you don't want to spend the money on it, that's perfectly okay. If you rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts, that really helps us out. And of course, tell someone you think might enjoy this this show or this episode and uh, share it with your friends. All right, that's everything I got for today. I hope you enjoyed this one. Abraham out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.